Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and Daniel Storey, the author and columnist. European football captures the essence of Manchester United. Their story encompasses tragedy and triumph. That's why Old Trafford will come alive on Tuesday. Negativity, bitterness and conflict have been replaced by optimism, adventure and harmony. Now, when the draw was made, PSG were overwhelming favourites. But this is a new United drawing on old values. They've got a real chance, haven't they, John? Well, I do think, as you said, when the draw was made, PSG were favourites. I would argue now Man United would, would slightly be edging to be my favourites, really, to, to win this tie over the two games. The mood has changed, hasn't it? It's amazing what a change of manager can do. <laughs> I mean, that overwhelming negativity, those kind of public outbursts, feels, it felt so draining back then, didn't it? I mean, it's, 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 it feels so long ago, and yet it feels so recent. It's remarkable, really, removing Jose Mourinho, getting rid of all those barbs, falling out with star players move into an Old Trafford legend, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who's just completely changed everything. I think it's too simplistic, too patronising to say it's all about kind of just smiles on faces, where he's clearly got his tactics right, he's got his players playing with enjoyment and freedom and style, and he's got the best out of his players like Pogba and, and, and Rashford, most notably. And I just think they go into it with a new energy, a new belief that they can really go a long way into this competition, not just beat PSG, but go further in this competition. Sosa has been talking about his vision. That's in terms of maybe over the next two seasons. Other than saying to Ed Woodward, gives a job, what can he do and what can he actually physically put in place for the future? I think all he can do is pretty much exactly what he has been doing. If you were going to write a list of five things you want from Manchester United's permanent manager, how many of them is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer not already achieving? And by achieving it so quickly it makes removing Solskjaer a risk. It means if they make a change in the summer now, they risk ceding all that goodwill that's been accrued and, and clearly the players are enjoying themselves. So I don't think he can do any more than he can be doing. I agree with John. I think he, he is doing a little bit more than just putting smiles on faces, albeit that is a, you know, it's a crucial thing because it was such a change from the Mourinho era. But telling Paul Pogba to get further forward, telling him to delight in possession, telling Rashford to stay on that final shoulder. Rashford's talked about him talking him through his chances and getting him to calm down in front of goal. And... 
Anthony Martial scored a goal at the weekend that was Thierry Henry-esque. And, and again, it's all about that confidence. That doesn't just come from telling players to enjoy themselves. It comes from making them feel comfortable within their work, getting them to rely on instinct. And, yeah, I don't think he can do any more than he is. It's about state of mind, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. I do feel at, at first when they made Solskjaer the interim manager, I think the view was... Let's see how he goes until the end of the season, but can't really see sort of Solskjaer's leaving mould, you know, in Norway to then come to the Premier League to manage, as they see it, the biggest club in the world. And I just feel over the course of these 11 games, 10 wins, he's just been remarkable that basically he's just completely changed that. And I do think there's something to be said, isn't there, from calling on the values of a player who used to play for the club, a legend. And he accepts, he knows basically what's entailed of being Manchester United manager. I love the way he speaks. I thought early on, I thought he kept on referencing Sir Alex Ferguson a little bit too much. Now he's moved on slightly towards saying what Man United stands for, what it means to play for Man, Man United. And you can bet every Man United press conference or the supporter watching those press conferences will love that. They will understand that sort of Solskjaer knows what it means, what it takes winning with flair, what it all means for them. And I just think he's making himself irresistible, at, I think, in, in the shake-up, while others are kind of falling by the wayside. I think Solskjaer now just looks the only man in contention. Would you give him the job now? I don't see any need to make it official yet on the basis that they're still on this initial upward curve. And while that continues, I think they might as well keep it in place. I, I, I strongly suspect that there will be movements behind the scenes to bring him closer to the club and consult him about what's going to happen further on. Which Well, they've, they've got to be drawing up recruitment lists and everything else now anyway. Exactly, yeah. And I think that will be happening with him involved, which lends itself to the fact that, you know, that he's going to get the job. But I don't see any reason, any necessity to announce it now, simply because everything's going pretty well now. The, the drawing out Alex Ferguson thing is really interesting because the initial assumption was that Alex Ferguson and his great history at the club was kind of throttling Manchester United. It was suffocating Louis van Gaal and it was suffocating Jose Mourinho. The fact that a manager has been able to come in and say, hang on a minute, let's not let this suffocate us. This is an incredible platform. This is something we should be using, not letting it weigh us down, is something that Van Gaal and Mourinho didn't really do. Mourinho's was a, we need to change everything that Van Gaal did. And Van Gaal was a, we need to change everything that David Moyes did. And David Moyes was a, very much a bit part solution anyway. So it's incredibly refreshing, not just to Manchester United fans, but actually to the rest of us as well, I think. Because yeah. every club, every big club, has an identity. And United grew away from that identity, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And what, what is that identity? That identity, I think, is free-flowing football, always trying to attack, always trying to score another goal. If it means conceding because they're basically going for an extra third or fourth goal, then so be it. And it's also winning with style. And I just think that, that Mourinho really moved away to it. I mean, you know, let's be honest here, Van Gaal, blimey. I mean, the, 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 the rules on passing within games suffocated Man United and they lost their identity then. And I just felt that Mourinho coming in, when he first took over and the excitement that, that went with Paul Pogba and when they snatched Lukaku, you thought, maybe they can do something here. The first season wasn't too bad, but you thought, yes, he's won something, got them back in, into the Champions League and let's have a platform now to build. And actually, it got worse. And the, the point was that the basic... I just think that Solskjaer has gone back to old values 
there. They're playing with that style. They rested and rotated players on Saturday at Fulham. And yet, albeit I was, I was watching on telly, it was fantastic to watch. They were brilliant. They, they were like the, the United, you know, used to be. The pass and move, the attacking with flair. You know, players that sort of that wanted to run with the ball, get the ball. And it was just, it was really good to watch. And that's what Man United are, are about. That's what they stand for. Mm. But it's interesting, you know, we're talking about identity. I cannot, for the life of me, define what the identity of PSG is. Now, if you look at them, They've been out in the last 16 stage for the last two seasons. Is there a case to be made for them to being the greatest underachievers in European football? Certainly. I, don't, I think that's unquestioned relative to their budgets and their resources. Uh, the one thing Paris Saint-Germain have not really had is a, a truly elite manager. They've, they've signed elite players for elite money, but they haven't had an elite manager to bring them together. You know, that's not to denigrate Thomas Tuchel or Laurent Blanc or Unai Emery, but they're not, they're not on that top tier of managers where Paris Saint-Germain would consider that they, sell, they should be. You know, Manchester City had the same money as them and they went out and got Pep Guardiola. And I think that speaks about a, a lack of identity, a lack of football heritage, probably. And that can make things very difficult because we know, we know the difference a manager can make to elite players. And we also know with, with the egos within a, a squad of elite players that if they don't respect the man in charge, things can fall away quite quickly. The thing with PSG, they don't have a, an awful lot of competitive football. So that when they are in a situation where they are challenged, put into a position of adversity, they don't actually have a whole lot of shared experience together at getting out of those situations. And that's, I think that's what's undone them in the Champions League. And, and that's exactly what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will be telling his Manchester United players. Look, you can be better than these in situations of adversity. If we've got five or six key crunch situations in these legs, we can be better than them in those moments. Mm. No Neymar, no Cavani internal divisions, lost their first game mm. you know, last week. PSG are, are vulnerable as they'll ever be, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I just think normally you rely on their goals to win them games. And without Neymar and Cavani, then you would have to say that that's a major mm. worry. Um, and Beppe, in 23 Champions League ties, scored 13 goals, seven assists. Mm. But he's a one-man band this week, isn't he? Well, he is. And also, I just feel that I mean, I watched the Lyon game a couple of Sundays ago and that was absolute... What an incredible game of football that was. And there were flashes of Mbappe there that were absolutely magnificent. And clearly, he's going to be one of the best players in the world. But I still feel that he's, he's on the upward curve, even though it sounds bizarre to say that, bearing in mind what he's you know, already you know, achieved in his career. And I just feel that he probably needed players to compliment him along the way. And I just feel that, that the PSG will suffer without those two big players because they are always liable to concede goals. You still feel that they're defensively not quite good enough. The goalkeeper remains something of an issue. I just think that Tuchel, I just don't get it with Tuchel. I mean, they, they clearly appointed Emery because of his track record in the Europa League. Mm. Ultimately, he fell short. I don't think he's in, in that upper level. Tuchel's a very combative manager, isn't he? I mean, he did the rows and fallouts that he had at Dortmund, I thought, were incredibly telling. And now, behind the scenes, it's not working. And there's suggestions that Arsene Wenger might go in there to try and smooth between the sort of the director of football and, and sort of the, and the dressing room. Well, to me, that if you're having to do that, you're appointing the wrong guy in the first place. I mean, PSG score goals for fun, and they have done, but their recent exits and failures in the Champions League, tell you everything you need to know. They're vulnerable, they're, they're well-beatable. Let's face it, 
if Arsene Wenger goes into that club, he's manager. Well, he, uh, listen, it, yeah. if I were Thomas Tuchel and Arsene Wenger was appointed, bearing in mind his relationship with the people behind the scenes, you, you're immediately nervous and worried about what might happen in the long term. I mean, I do still, I think it's a bit of a weird one and let's see whether that happens because that job has been there and available, I think, since last summer. Mm. And a lot of his former French players were saying, oh, he'll take that job. Well, you know, he, he wanted some time out, yes, but I still think that it's been available for a long time. So let, let's see if that one actually happens. But I think that PSG, we felt that maybe three, four years ago, were on course to be one of European football's elite. So one of three or four genuine contenders to win the Champions League. Do any of us really think they can win the Champions League this season? I certainly don't. No, no, no. And that would suggest to me that they have gone backwards. Bearing in mind that they have signed Mbappe and Neymar, two of the best players in the world, during that period, I think that's a poor reflection on where the club is going. Mm. Talking of clubs and journeys, uh, you, know, you were both at Spurs Leicester yesterday. Tottenham have got a real game at Wembley now, if we can put it like that, uh, which would feel like a real Wembley game. Dortmund on Wednesday. What sort of state are they in now, Dan? They're in a, a weird dichotomy whereby they're winning games without playing well and they've, they've done that for basically a month at home. But they're retaining this incredible goodwill because they're doing so without Harry Kane and Deli Alley. And, and yes, they both will be absent for, for the game on Wednesday. But they're in a state where they feel slightly untouchable, I think, because despite everything that they do to themselves, despite the stadium fast, despite the injuries, despite having to play Fernando Llorente as a, as a, as a striker and despite playing a midfield of... Oliver Skip and Harry Winks and Musa Sissoko yesterday and being outplayed, they're still winning matches. Dortmund are, to my mind, one of the worst teams that Tottenham could have drawn because Tottenham in the Champions League and in the Premier League have thrived when they are the underdogs and when they are making themselves better than the sum of their parts. If there's one club that's doing that in Europe at the moment, it's Borussia Dortmund. And I think it's almost a, a not no-lose situation for them both. They can both just go out and play football. And given the injuries Tottenham have, I fear for them against Dortmund. I really do. Um, but, yeah, they're in a very strange position. As John and I, as you say, we're both at Wembley and they were hammered by Leicester yesterday. They gave away four or five very good chances. Leicester missed a penalty. And yet, at the end of it, the fans are walking out of Wembley, a stadium they don't want to be in, and they're saying, well, we're still only a few points off top of the Premier League. And they're on course for 88 points this season in the league, which is... That would have been enough to win the Premier League in, I think, like 13 or 14 Premier League seasons, which is remarkable for a club of their resources. Mm. And I suppose every win, even if it's not really merited, just tells you what a fantastic job Pochettino is doing. Oh, absolutely. It's fantastic. And I do think that yesterday was, was a bigger tribute to the resilience and the mental toughness of, of that team. I mean, Lloris, I made him my man. <laughs> she was just sensational. Not just the penalty save, but really good saves, you know, throughout the game. Leicester had so many chances. But it, I, th I think Pochettino, looking at it, the cupboard's bare, really. So he had to take a bit of a gamble and he had to sort of play Skip, for example. I thought Skip was good, actually. Various sort of players and gambles and risks because he's, you know, without Deli Alley and without Harry Kane. We all thought they'd fall away. I certainly did at this point because of those injuries. And to keep them competitive and keep them going and motivated is a remarkable tribute to him. Listen, we always go on, don't we, about the kind of not won a trophy. And I personally I do not understand why you, you have to make finishing top four and the domestic cup mutually exclusive. I don't get that. But 
football has changed, let's be honest, and it's a modern world. And for people to sort of knock the achievement of Pochettino, of finishing top four, of progressing every single season, even to keep them competitive this season, when bearing in mind they've not signed a player in the last two windows, is just a remarkable achievement. And if people can't get that, well, I would suggest them that's sheer bitterness. I mean, he plays really good football when they're, when they're playing well and they're making great strides and great progress. Yeah, talking of remarkable achievements... Wednesday night's going to be the Sancho show, isn't it? Just try and put into context just how well he's done going into big, hugely supported club in the Bundesliga, basically taking it by the scruff of the neck. It's a tribute to him. It's also a tribute to the Bundesliga as a place for young players to play and Borussia Dortmund as a club for young players to play. He, he could not have picked a better club to go and develop at. And... He's a kind of accidental trailblazer and role model, really, because I don't think he ever considered, A, that it would go this well this quickly, although he's a, he's a very confident boy, uh, and secondly, that he would have this knock-on reaction where he was this poster boy for English youngsters wanting to go abroad. But he just plays with freedom. He's incredibly skillful, as are so many players in his crop of England, you know, that under-17 squad. Mm. They're all very capable, they're all very technical, they're all very skillful, and most of them are very pacey. And there is benefit in being the surprise option. And in a team when you've got Marco Royce and Christian Pulisic and players like that, there is a huge benefit into being this kind of... Like Mbappe at PSG, when you've got... Everyone focuses on Neymar and Cavani and suddenly you've got this guy on the blind side, you know, ruining you. He's that guy at Dortmund. But, yeah, I mean, fair play to the lad because... I remember being 17, 18 years old and going off to university was a scary experience. Never mind going to live in another country to play with players who I'd never met before. And to take it so quickly is, yeah, it's a real tribute to the man and the player. Eight million pounds. Who made that decision at Man City? <laughs> yeah, I, listen, I do. I mean, we're also bearing in mind, don't, don't forget that that came literally weeks might be a little bit more generous and say months after basically the hierarchy said there's a group of young players who we certainly cannot ever see you know leaving the club and we must build our future on them. and Sancho was named as one of them mm. and so I personally feel it was more about I think sometimes the clubs and I have some sympathy with with them because it's difficult to sometimes offer that and show that pathway to Sancho mm. and I think that City at that time Sancho was just looking at it and thinking, I'm never going to get a chance here. And it was also interesting, wasn't it, that there were serious Premier League clubs in for him, Tottenham and Arsenal. And it's also a reflection on them as well as Manchester City that he felt that moving abroad to Borussia Dortmund was his best option. I think it's really interesting for, for, for City is that let's see if they, if they can learn some lessons um, from this, I personally think they probably will. It was really interesting, wasn't it, recently to say that sort of Guardiola was actually praising the academy, even mm. though they were they were letting another kid go. Well, Diaz went to Real Madrid, didn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely, and I, I think you either see it as as something of a business, something of a school, mm. which can then develop players and they can have good professional careers, or you can see it as, as huge howling mistakes. But isn't that where Chelsea fell down? You know, look at another another one, uh, Rabi. Matondo. Yeah. yeah well, was he, a, was the, he was the one that I was thinking of, really. Yeah. Guardiola picked out the academy for yeah. developing a, a player. And I, th I thought people might look at that and think, what a strange comment to make, really, from Guardiola. Yeah. But I actually see it from the other side. And they've produced, uh, I think, a player who could go on to have a good professional career. Where I think is really interesting is that Sancho was clearly on the elite level, as is Phil Foden. Mm. 
but will Phil Foden be given and offered the opportunities at Man City, which he undoubtedly will if he chooses to go abroad. Yeah. And let's then see whether City have learned some lessons by putting Foden in and giving him yeah. opportunities that maybe Sancho felt he had to leave because he wasn't going to get. Well, let's look at the killer stat. In terms of career league and Champions League minutes, Jadon Sancho, 2,212. Phil Foden, 427. Mm. That tells you the story, doesn't it? Yeah, and if you speak to any of the... Manchester City and the England youth coaches, they will tell you that Phil Foden is the business. To my mind, he's got the kind of canary down England's or the Premier League's mind because if he doesn't work out at an elite club, then I can see and I hope I see the next generation of kids saying, well, actually, no, you know, I'll have to go and be schooled at those clubs. But the minute I feel like I'm being pushed down the list by a new signing, I'm off because... These minutes are crucial to development. That's been shown repeatedly down, you know, through the years. Look at the, the young stars of the last two years in the Premier League. Marcus Rashford, who got an opportunity through necessity. Aaron Wambasaka got an opportunity through necessity. Trent Alexander-Arnold, exactly the same because of injuries. People are only getting options because, you know, not by design, but almost by accident or by necessity. And when they do get these opportunities, they're shown they're very, you know, they're very capable players. Sean Longstaff at Newcastle last few weeks, mm. he's only in there because, you know, Shelby and Diarmi and Key were not available. And yet he suddenly looks as good as any of them. So it should give huge power and huge confidence to those young players to say, right, if we're not going to get our minutes, we are going to go abroad. Because the Bundesliga is a perfect home, partly because it gives chances to young players, but also because it's not a constant spotlight. Every... Jadon Sancho has bad games and he has bad periods of games, but we don't really hear about that because he's away from the spotlight in a very positive way. Uh, what drives me insane about this is that I think A, Man City have arguably the best academy in the country and they are getting kids to a certain level. So in no way am I knocking them because they've fabulous coaching, fabulous facilities, but let's, let's see them push, you know, phone mm. up. And, and that's the challenge for Pep Guardiola. But, but much more pertinently... What I think is so telling about what happened with Hudson-Odoi, for example, at Chelsea, is that Chelsea spend all this money on signing Christian Pulisic from Dortmund, 60, what, £65 million, pounds, depending on where we are with Brexit and the exchange rate. <laughs> um, but basically, it's, they, will, they will draft him over and they will say, we've got to make him work because he's a big signing. Mm. So they will give him games. He's not old by any means, but he's fallen down the pecking order at Dortmund because of Sancho. Chelsea will stick with him. They will stick with him in the first team. They will experience the initial, you know, sort of rush when he plays well in his first few games. Then the dip comes, but they will still stick with him. And then basically he'll level out. Why not offer that opportunity to Hudson-Odoi? For me, that's the, that's the most pressing thing because at City, at least you can say, well, they're top of the league and they're, they're fabulous and it's hard for any player to break in. And yes, that is unfortunately sort of the fallout which will affect some young players, but you can't then criticise them for it. Whereas Chelsea is different, is that, that they are shopping for the same player. Why not give Hudson-Odoi the same mm. opportunity? That, for me, is a bigger issue. Mm. But at Chelsea, they don't know which way's up at the moment. You know, that humiliation at Manchester City just adds to the pressure on, on Sarri. Chelsea, let's be honest, are not the uh, most conservative club when it comes to dealing with their managers. Mm -hmm. You've got Roman Abramovich, it seems, from the outside, being distanced from what's going on there. Where do you see the whole Chelsea saga leading us? I think it's a mess, and if it's not a mess, it might be a, an end game for an era of Chelsea. 
because, look, they went out and they courted and then appointed Mauricio Sarri. A very long-term campaign of trying to get him in. He was their first choice. They got him in. They knew he was a long-term manager and a manager that had a very distinct playing style that may take time, patience, transfer windows to sort. I feel a little bit sorry for Sarri in that Pep Guardiola finished fourth in his first season in England with, to my mind, a better squad than Sarri has and in a less competitive Premier League than Sarri is facing. And I think this was always going to happen. I think there were always going to be teething problems. Chelsea's problem is that they've got Eden Hazard potentially agitating for a move. They've got William and Pedro with not long left on their contracts. They've got a Hudson-Odoi mess that's, of the, as John rightly says, is of their own making. They've got defenders in David Luiz and Gary Cahill's dropped out, but ageing defenders. And at some point, something fairly major is going to have to happen. And I, I, my suspicion is that it will be the same as it always is at Chelsea, which is they'll rely on this managerial short-termism and go, right, we'll get someone else in. You know, we'll hope for an Antonio Conte, someone to win the league in the first season. But at some point, that's going to stop working because the clubs around them, Manchester City and now Liverpool as well, I think, are playing smarter games. I honestly believe that. With their money, they are playing smarter games. And there's only so long you can try and compete with that. And, and if Abramovich is trying to distance himself and there is a kind of disconnect between owner and club and club and manager, then it's very hard to keep fighting that fight. And mm. yeah, I feel like, as I say, it's either a mess or it's an end game and neither is a particularly attractive solution for Chelsea fans. Sure. Do you think they'll keep Sarri for the short term at least? Oh, I just think, I think if you look at it, with the situation they're in, they've got a Europa League game on Thursday forget almost that they've got FA Cup fifth round tie at home against Man United and they're in a Wembley final, the Carabao Cup final. Well, and also a point off the top four. So I think it would be crazy to change him now. My, my suspicion and hope is that they won't. And I don't, I can't struggle to believe that they will change it any time imminently, shall we say. But this is Chelsea <laughs> and they have such a, such a track record, I'm afraid, and reputation for you know, panicking and pulling pulling the trigger. But, you know, they, they've not been in great form. It's clear that there's, there's big issues here, I think, with, with Sari Ball, for, you know, um, for, for want of a better expression. And that some of the players don't like it. And that basically they want a plan B, because if Jorginho's going through a sticky spell, which he absolutely undoubtedly is, and he's absolutely central to that to that play to get things moving... Then, then, you know, what else are they going to do? I, th- I think almost the best thing that could happen at the moment to, to Chelsea is uh, I wouldn't want to wish an injury on a player, but Jorginho misses a few games because they'd have to find a different way of playing, try and resort to a different way, but that goes against the grain for, for Sari, and that's why, you know, I think it would be difficult for him to, to, to instigate that sort of thing. But I completely agree with Dan. It's such a, such a strange period for Chelsea, has the owner lost a little bit of interest? You certainly don't see him around as much as you used to. Big suggestions, albeit denied heavily at the time last summer, that the club, you know, is for sale. You know, there's a FIFA investigation going on with sort of rumours that, you know, if they are found guilty of sort of any wrongdoings, then they might face a transfer window ban. And the suggestion was that basically, you know, they would buy big in January, which they didn't do. It's such a strange situation at the moment for Chelsea. I just think it would be far more wise if they have changed their outlook, if they are being a bit more conservative, to stick with the manager and try and go in a different direction. Stick with Sarri, stick with his philosophy, give him two years. The, the, I remember in Guardiola's first season, they lost, I think it was 4-1 at Leicester. And that, that was, felt like the lowest ebb. It felt like the moment where we thought, hang on, this actually might not work out. 
The difference was twofold. Firstly, Guardiola knew he had massive transfer budgets coming later on to sort things out and used them. And secondly, he was very protective of his players at that point. Sarri has not been protective of his players. He's already called them out twice publicly and said, you know, it's going to take him a long time. They've learned basically nothing under my leadership. And that becomes a little bit of a manager who cried wolf if he's not careful because there's only so many times you can call out very high-value assets as a club, particularly if you're worried about a transfer ban being on the way, without the club going, well, actually, maybe it's easier. You're, maybe you're the problem and we'll get someone else in. But I strongly suspect that Sarri worries that he's been sold a bit of a pup with this, we want to be a big long-term vision. And I'm not sure he's sure that Chelsea are committed to that. Mm. We have to acknowledge City are on a completely different level at the moment, aren't they? That performance against Chelsea was, was sensational. Are we getting to the point where the quadruple is becoming, you know, not just a little pipe dream, but actually quite realistic? Well, in as much as that basically you'd have to make them strong favourites for the Carabao Cup now, <laughs> after what they did to Chelsea yesterday, yeah. so they've got the rematch in a couple of Sundays' time. And then basically the FA Cup, then they've got this away game at Newport. Now, even if they change and rotate, come on. You know they should they should be winning that game. Yeah. Um, Schalke's an easy, uh, one of the easier ties. Absolutely, and and also the FA Cup. The thing is about that is that basically you have seen so many big guns fall by the wayside, and you look at what might potentially be the last eight in the sixth round. Well, no one would want to face City, and they would be the best and biggest team in there, no matter what else happens really, because so many have gone out already, and then basically they are in this great place in the Premier League. I think it was a couple of games ago, it might have even been Arsenal when, when Guardiola said um, we're back basically and, and, and I thought what does he mean by that? And I just think they've shown since then exactly what, what, what they mean really. And the, the, the ground it out weren't at their best at Everton but that's a difficult place to go and win no matter what sort of shape Everton are in because you know Goodison can be difficult and it was and it wasn't their most polished performance but then they came out the other side bearing in mind you know they're the only team at the top to have played in the midweek and yet they were absolutely magnificent against Chelsea i mean all of the Chelsea crisis somewhat takes away the level of performance mm. from man city if they can keep that going, then absolutely, I think that the quadruple, you know, would be unprecedented, but it would be achievable on, on this form. Mm. What about Liverpool? I think it was a it was a necessary win at the weekend. It was a kind of slightly ironic that they won three 0 and lost ground on Manchester City, given their performance against Chelsea. But they're in a situation now where only the results are king. And if they grind it out, Klopp will be just as happy as if he win three or four. I thought the good sign at the weekend was how the front three worked a little bit better together because actually they've had defensive injuries and had midfield injuries and they've taken the, the story away from the fact that the front three has just been a little bit bitty recently, a little bit inefficient. Mohamed Salah in particular, now he's still, even after Aguero's goals, he's still the joint top scorer in the Premier League, but he's just been a little bit off his game recently, I think. But that third goal where Firmino storms through and back heels it for Salah and he slots it back and then Salah hits the bar a few bits later, that just shows the signs of normality returning. But their game against Manchester United will be absolutely monumental. And these are the sort of games where we talk about mental toughness and mental character. Liverpool are good enough still to beat that Manchester United team, but it's going to take a huge force of effort coming reasonably soon after a, a Bayern Munich first leg. 
that I just feel like for the first time now, I think I would make Manchester City favourites again for the title. Mm. It's ironic, isn't it, that Manchester United could end up being the kingmakers because they've got Liverpool and they've got the Manchester derby in the next month. Yeah, it's, it's a huge run of games. I mean, I just think the City at the moment look in fantastic shape. I think that Liverpool have managed the games really, really well. And I think what the other thing about Liverpool is that the way they, they manage those midfield trio, if you like, they've had so many different variables, so many different variations on the way that they play. And I think Klopp has been really clever in the way that he's changed it. You know, you just don't know whether you're going to get sort of Henderson, Keiter, Shakiri, you know, Fabinho's played such a key role in recent weeks. He's really mixed it up nicely. And whereas you think you know that Man City's first choice 11, I'm not sure that we do about Liverpool. And that isn't a criticism. It maybe keeps them fresh. Mm. So I think maybe they can have that game against Bayern Munich and then feel as if you know, they've got enough fresh players to go and then beat Manchester United, for, for example. I just think that the one area defensively if they can get through this patch and get Joe Gomez back for the run-in, because I don't think you should underestimate his importance. Mm. Alexander-Arnold gives them so much more pace and you know a different attacking dimension from right back. If they can come through this little mini-injury crisis intact, Liverpool you know, still in fantastic shape. Mm. Because you've got... You know, Vinaldum proved his worth, I think, again, against Bournemouth. Now, Naby Keita, you know, I'll hold my hands up, I thought he was one of the disappointments of the season. And on Saturday, he proved a lot of critics wrong, didn't he? He did. And John's point about the variation speaks volumes here because it means not just that Klopp can change things for a, you know, a different strategy to face each opponent, but it also means he can take some, a player out of the firing line. If he's worried about the form, it doesn't look like dropping them, it looks like resting them. And it means that he can go, right, it's just not working out quite for you at the moment, so I'm going to take you out of the firing line play three very capable midfielders anyway and everyone, no one misses the player that's not there as long as Liverpool keep winning and then he can just slowly bring them back in. He did it with Fabinho at the start of the season. I was worried about Fabinho when he wasn't playing at £50 million midfielder not playing every two or three weeks and yet he can just slowly bring him back in and it does, it looks like rotation and resting rather than you're not playing well, you're dropped because if Liverpool are going to beat Manchester City to this title they're, going to, they're all going to need to be informed, they're all going to need to be at top power, top volume for that run-in because Manchester City have been here before and Liverpool haven't been here before. Cater is clearly a very talented midfielder but it hasn't worked out. I don't think he's been brilliant this season. I don't think Fabinho's been brilliant this season but by having that rotation, by having those options with Oxlade-Chamberlain potentially still to come back for the run-in, it just means they've got you know, they can take the pressure, they can take the spotlight, they can take the glare off those players who are perhaps not quite at their peak. Mm. Let's look at Europa League is the Europa League the way into the Champions League for Arsenal and Chelsea? <laughs> yeah, I do think that they will see it as the more realistic opportunity to get in. I just don't know quite how Arsenal are <laughs> still only one point behind top four because their performance levels have been so erratic, so inconsistent. And yet, you have to give them credit for this. It's not necessarily a criticism that basically they're still in the mix. And yet, do we really think they're going to finish top four? I don't think they will. And I think Chelsea have got more realistic chance of finishing top four. But you'd have to say United have got the momentum. And yet, you look at the, you know, still a lot of big teams in there. It's still going to be a difficult, I think, trophy to win. And yet, Arsenal 
Batty Borisov and then Chelsea. It's always Batty uh, Borisov, isn't it? Can't get away from him. I mean, basically, <laughs> if Arsenal knock him out, they'll still play him in the semi-finals. It's ridiculous. It's you know the they're, they're staple diet of the Europa League, isn't it? It's crazy. And then I also think that Chelsea, you know, no matter what result last weekend, you surely get a reaction, and then they'll play, you know, Malmo. What is interesting is that Chelsea do change it a bit, but they keep, you know, much more of a consistent, steady team. Bearing in mind they're going Sunday, Thursday and then Monday, I think you'll see Sari actually pick a really strong team for, for that game. Whereas, bearing in mind that Emery has such an incredible track record from, from winning it on the bounce with, with, with Sevilla, you do think that he's a past master at knowing what teams and what momentum to gain for what he regards as incredibly important competition. They haven't got, they're out of the FA Cup, so they haven't got that distraction either. And again, I think you'll see Arsenal throughout the rounds continue to pick a really strong team because yes absolutely that I think they do regard this as an incredibly important you know way back into the Champions League a few of us sat down with the the hierarchy not so long back at you know sort of a couple of members of the board at, at Arsenal and they were stressing just how important without wanting to place too much pressure <laughs> on on sort of the club and the team of getting back in the Champions League is and it is everything for them otherwise financially to miss out for a third year running, it really will take its toll, I think, on their ambition this summer and what they need to do to, to improve that squad. It's also massive for Emery, isn't it? Yeah. Because if Wenger's biggest calamities tended to come in those, albeit Champions League, but those European second legs when against Bayern Munich, against Barcelona, clubs like that. So if Emery can say, yeah, I won the Europa League at Sevilla, but also I can bring that, I can bring that A game, I can bring that European stellar form to Arsenal then it justifies him being backed, doesn't it? Because if, if they go out in the Europa League last 16 or quarter-finals and finish sixth in the league, there's a lot less to hang your hat on with Emery than there is if, they, if he can go to us and say, look, you wanted trophies, I've brought you back in the Champions League, I've won the Europa League. There's no doubt at that point that he is the man for at least the next season and maybe even longer. So it's huge for Emery. Mm. Let's look at the FA Cup. And I almost at that group just underneath the top six... Are Watford, who've got QPR on Friday, or Wolves, who've got to go to Bristol City, are they viable winners of the FA Cup? And should they really go for it? Absolutely. And, and in fairness to them, I think they have. I think Wolves obviously had a scare against Shrewsbury. <laughs> but Watford made 11 changes, Well, they, they did, but... And, listen, they took a lot of criticism for that. But I do still think that they... They probably mixed it up, but they should take it a lot more seriously now if they didn't before. Just because I think that if Watford won it, it would just be the best day in the club's history. Yeah. You know, it'd just be an amazing achievement. You know, and I say that with bearing in mind, you know, all the history that's gone before, it would just be remarkable. Everything that sort of, you know, Graham Taylor achieved and go and win the FA Cup, that would be a fabulous sort of kind of way of remembering the glorious sort of a wonderful past of, the, of that wonderful football club. And why not try and go for it? I mean, they, they've certainly got a shrewd manager in Grazia who's bucked the trend and actually stayed for a decent <laughs> amount of time. Blimey, he's, he's, he's stayed for more than a year, it's which is watch remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just really good, actually. I, I enjoy seeing Watford doing well because, they, you know, they embody what they, you know, they set out to do, don't they, really, in trying to sort of embrace the local community, be a sort of something of a family club. And it would be really great to see them win a trophy and, and I have to say from afar I've so much admiration for what Nuno is doing at Wolves to play really good football 
Yes, he's bought a lot. Of, you know, he's had this sort of the, you know good fortune or other. The Mendes connection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I do feel that that also he's really coached players like Doherty and players like that and Bennett and really got the best out of them within that structure. And so he's clearly a very good coach as well as being a very you know good manager. It'd be great to see them one of those teams win it. And it sets a real good template for, for other teams that don't perhaps take it quite as seriously. Brighton as well, don't forget. Mm. What about Derby? They've got potentially winnable tie against Brighton. Um, Frank Lampard, how, what's the progress report? I think the progress report is Frank Lampard and Jody Morris are clearly a, a two-man team. Frank Lampard has been keen to say that himself. He's not, you know, he's not trying to hog the limelight. He's not trying to hog the praise. They're doing a pretty solid job. Derby have always been, well, for the last four or five years, have been a club that have struggled in the last two, three months of the season. They've been in positions where they've had automatic promotion chances, had playoff chances, and then just slipped. And Lampard and Morris will know that, and Derby fans know that, believe me. They, this will be where they both prove themselves, because they've spent a fair amount of money, they've got a very big wage bill, although not designed by Lampard and Morris. It was there when they got there, and they've got a couple of young players in Mason Mount and Harry Wilson who are amongst the best players in the league, particularly now... Harvey Barnes has been called back by Leicester. They play good attacking football. They play the, the type of football we, we assume that Lampard would like to play, attractive passing football. But it's in these last three months that they will prove themselves because Derby managers before them have fallen by the wayside in these last few months of the season. Mm. It's always been a very impressive character, I've always found. Yeah, I, I sort of the pleasure of sort of spending a bit of time in his company a couple of weeks ago. And he's, he's really, he's so mature. He's, he's absolutely embraced it. You know he's very sensible in his thinking because, as Dan was saying, it's it's a long-term job. It's not a. It's easy to make this mistake of basically saying that Frank Lampard's there. Of course they should go up. They've got to win promotion this season, and you know he's he's changed the ground rules. Yes, there's pressure on him because he is Frank Lampard, but he's just trying to keep it sensible. He's trying to do things the right way. They have inherited a lot of kind of financial obstacles, shall we say, because it is. You know, it's a bit of an ageing squad, some players out of contract. He's got to sort of be cute in his dealings. Mm. But he's actually, you know, his reputation, his name standing in the game is the reason why they can get some of those exciting young players in. I mean, I think people forget just what a coup it was to get Mason Mount. Because mm. when England went out in the World Cup in the summer, people like me are sort of, un uh, sort of asked, to, you know, name your squad or name your young players to watch for the next World Cup. And invariably, if you try anyone within the game, they would throw Mason Mount at you and basically saying he's one of the most exciting young English midfielders in the country. And it was, at that time, it was impossible to think that basically he would go and play a full season in the Championship. But that's what he's done because it's Frank Lampard. And I think he's very sensible in what he's done. I love the connection that he's clearly got with the fans because you see him after, sort of after games when he absolutely you know, respects the following that they've got, they love him, and it's a real connection. So it's a real positive vibe. I, I don't know whether they'll be quite good enough. It would have to be via the playoffs to go up this season. But they're really making very tangible progress. Good. A couple of questions from the, the viewers and the listeners. Uh, one from a, a Bournemouth fan, Rob. With such a vast gulf in spending power between the big six and the rest, would it be better for the game and fans of other clubs just to let them go and form a European league? No. <laughs> I think Bournemouth actually spent quite... They're not too bad, but I, no, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like it. I think that basically, I think what we'll see in the next four or five years is some sort of reform 
of the Champions League, where basically we already we know we're going to get a third European competition. That I think will almost sieve out the sort of the lesser teams, and you'll see a new super Champions League invented, not too in the not too distant future. That's as far as I'd like to see it go because I love the Premier League and what it what it is. Okay, uh, now from electronic tins. Aguero is underrated. Discuss. They say that should get 15 minutes from Daniel. You've got about 45 seconds. Yeah, he, he is brilliant. Uh, I think there are two distinct reasons why he isn't maybe lauded as the greatest Premier League striker or the greatest Premier League import. And firstly, we don't know that much about him. He, doesn't, he still doesn't speak particularly good English. He doesn't do these big, big interviews. He do, he's not huge on social media. He's not a big person. He's not like a Paul Pogba. Or a, and also, I think at Manchester City, they've had leaders by example who demand more praise or demand more attention. Vincent Company is a very obvious example. Pablo Zabaleta was for a long time. David Silva is an incredible leader by example. So I just think there's so many players at City that that we, that we just kind of overlook Sergio Agro. But yeah, I think we all in the game know how brilliant he is and how consistent he is, despite, it should be said, despite a fair few injuries over the years. So yeah, I, I, we have a thing where players go from being underrated and overrated and underrated and overrated and we pour praise on them, but he's certainly earning that praise at the moment. That's good. I'd just like to finish on, on, on a reflective note. We lost Vicky Orvis, football reporter and athletics reporter, at The Sun last week. You know, I knew her for 20 years. I'm sure you did the same, John. We've lost someone who's a trailblazer in the right... You know, we talk about role models in sport... Her example for up-and-coming female football writers is unsurpassable. What did we lose when we lost Vicky? Well, absolutely, a trailblazer. You know, you could see the tributes from other, you know, fellow female journalists praising her for the example that she set. And, you know, she was instrumental, obviously, in, in women in football. I mean, the athletics world as well paid such glowing tributes it's funny, really, because we were on the athletics beat together for, you know, a few years. And uh, I think the, the Sydney Olympics in 2000 was the was our both our first um, Olympic Games. And I always remember playing tennis with her right on a, on a hotel rooftop, basically on the Gold Coast, which was the pre-Olympic training warm up camp. And it was my first Olympics. I'd only been at the mirror a couple of years. And then basically mid set when we were having a right old laugh, basically the phone goes and it's Des Kelly, obviously now works <laughs> for BT. And basically he was a sports, my sports editor then. I said, Des, I'm sorry, I'm mid, you know, set, can I call you back? <laughs> and basically, which didn't go down well. <laughs> and I have to say every time, you know, down the years, every time I see Vicky, she's always ribbing me about um, Des. And, you know, she's a great, great colleague, really good fun and such a good journalist, you know, and absolutely the trailblazer. I mean, she in athletics, particularly, I think, in, in recent times, the respect that she's been offered in the tributes, I think, is the best possible tribute that you can pay, you know, really, really amazing. And she's fought such a long battle until tragically last week we lost her, you know, that, 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 that also her bravery deserves incredible recognition yeah. as well. Because, you know, in an ideal world, we'd like to think that journalism isn't equal opportunity to the employer. How important is it for someone like Vicky to set an example to a girl out there who thinks to herself, I want to get into football? Oh, massive. And, and the thing is, it's not just about being a role model in terms of achieving. That is a role model. You, you, you're leading by example. But it's also about 
not pulling the ladder up behind you. Because it can be very easy to do that if you're in a position where you know that opportunities are few. It can be very easy to say, well, I've got my bit, I'm just going to pull the ladder up so I've got, I'm safe in my position. By all accounts, she did the opposite of that. She was not just a role model, but she was a mentor to people. And as John says, every one of those tributes said she was a great journalist, she was a great worker, but before that was, she was just a lovely person and she just helped me or she just gave me advice when I really needed it. And that's a testament, isn't it? Well, ours can be a rough trade. We know our own. Vicky was respected, admired, loved. She'll be missed. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.